Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Willem Bauter joining us here in New York, City Special Economic Advisor, formerly of the MPC at the Bank of England. Good morning to you, Willem. Good morning. We've had three growth scares in the last 10 years, 2011-2012, 15-16, and now 18-19. Each and every one driven by manufacturing, led by manufacturing, and the previous two didn't bleed into services in a big way. It was a head fake. We got out okay. Is this any different? Well, uh, time will tell. I'm getting increasingly concerned that in Europe, Euro area especially, it may be something different that we will get because of the extreme weakness of manufacturing data and sort of supplementary information about global trade coming from Korea that confirms this weakness uh, as being more, I think, than just uh, a manufacturing slowdown. I'm afraid this looks like it could really rub every part of the economy in the wrong way. For anyone tuning in this morning that hasn't seen the data yet, exports out of South Korea down almost 22%. The data in Germany, the PMI coming in at 41.4. There was a hope that we'd see a pickup there, Willem. Let's talk about the policy response. The ECB has thrown everything at it. Is that going to work? No, that's not going to be enough. Uh, Central banks in the position of the ECB with a policy rate at minus 60 beeps are effectively pushing on a string. Maybe a a nice string to push on, but it really will not boost activity uh, where it needs to be boosted. Only fiscal policy can do that. Professor Bader, I want to get out in front of our conversation with William Dudley this morning, and I want to give it in a 60,000-foot view way over the topics at hand. Negative interest rates, what that does to savers and what it does to the incentives in Europe, the low rates, the fiscal financial repression, rather, in the United States. Have we thought too hard for 14 years? Have we boxed ourselves in to a set of economics where we thought, you know, maybe this works, but to a lot of people it's not? It may not be working for a lot of people, but it doesn't mean there's a lot you can do about it. Uh, the fact that interest rates are negative now for a 17 trillion worth of uh, debt outstanding is a largely a reflection of a very low and indeed negative neutral global real interest rate. And uh, central banks sort of tinker around that uh, <coughs> fundamental reality which is driven by demographics, by uh, lack of uh, embodied technical change, and by other real economy factors. So central banks are not, in some sense, causing the lower I, I didn't rates. say they're causing it, but they have to deal with this new lower nominal GDP. Yes. You mentioned demographics. And as such, do we need to clear out the zombie companies, the zombie assets and liabilities that have, that have persisted through this 12 and 14 years? Especially in Europe, there has not been a... Uh, a thorough cleaning up of the bank balance sheet, and it was always a good idea yeah. to do that. Uh, of course, the timing is uh, wouldn't be ideal, but uh, right. a, a determined attempt to clean up the balance yeah. sheet uh, will 
be part of the solution do, to this problem. Does Manchester United uh, qualify as a zombie company, John Farrell? And not just yet, <laughs> though some Manchester United fans might feel that way. Willem, I just want to round things out on the fiscal policy question. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people on this side of the Atlantic looking to Europe just saying this has got to be inevitable now. This is the only policy tool left. Surely they're going to use it. Madame Lagarde will make the difference. As a European looking at the situation play out, all of the experience you have, do you see any chance of this happening in the next 18 months? I do, actually. It's not going to be dramatic. We're not going to see a kind of Trump-style 2018 fiscal stimulus. But we could get a percent of GDP worth of uh, fiscal relaxation in a selected number of countries, the ones with the most fiscal elbow room, uh, Germany, Netherlands and all that, and some smaller uh, fiscal stimulus in uh, in the rest of the euro area where the fiscal challenges are greater. If at the same time the ECB continues to engage in quantitative easing, yeah. they'll, be, they'll be in business for what looks like a mini helicopter money drop. Hey, Willem, great to catch up with you. The conversation to be continued. Right now, we'd like to migrate sort of to a October kickoff of American politics. We can do that with Wendy Schiller. She's at Brown uh, University. I like what you say, Wendy, in the beginning of your note on the brand of populism. What is the brand of populism of Iowa frontrunner Elizabeth Warren? That's truly economic populism. I mean, it's almost a blueprint from the 1880s, 1890s, sort of saying the individual working person deserves protection, deserves to make a decent wage. It's not sort of this elite tax cut, let's generate jobs through corporate America. It's what can we do for the individual? And so it's different from the Trump brand. When I first met the senator ages ago, she was a professor at Harvard And she was total policy wonk. I say that with all great respect for her public service. And she's still that way. Is there any evidence a policy wonk can get elected? Well, I mean, we're seeing that in the polls now with her, right? And we're seeing the response, literally, if you see the response at her rallies. And look at the way she sort of characterized herself. She dresses pretty simply. I mean, you're not supposed to pay attention, but everybody does anyway. She's simple in her dress. She's simple in her address to people. She, you know, runs sprints. She takes pictures with everybody. She really is trying, working very hard to sort of come down from that ivory tower mountain right. and really relate to people one-on-one. And that way, even though she's policy-focused, she's finding a way to relate what she wants to do policy-wise to how it will affect their daily lives. And at do, the moment, that seems to be resonating. Do you see that with the 14 flavors of Democrats in Iowa? Is she at the margin pulling over a new constituency or new constituencies, plural? I think she's working awfully hard at it. And where she's being, I think, strategically smart is talking about trade, figuring out how that affects farmers. It's so important to farmers. However, you have to brace yourself for Trump to cut a deal with China and get this thing off the table by December. So she's not focusing all of her time on that because she realizes that issue might actually go away. But those are economic issues. And we're very familiar with, you know, economics first. It's the economy stupid. Except last time around, other than depressed GDP, that didn't have much to do with the election. It was a battle of uh, Mr. Trump versus the Secretary of State. And I, I, I just wonder, do we actually get back to policy discussions as we go through the conventions in the election? Or do you see a redux 
of the, the tenor, the timbre of 2016? Well, Tom, you're pointing out something so vitally important, which is that you have to break through a TV screen or a video screen or a phone screen, whatever it is. You have to have the kind of charisma that says, I'm going to fight for you. And that's the big question mark. Can she break through on yeah. the national stage in the general? And we're seeing her break through a little bit uh, so far. But, yeah, there's some question marks out the way right. she can do that. It will be personality versus personality, and she will have to look as tough as Trump, <clears throat> and that is always more difficult for a woman to do than a man. So you're, it's absolutely right. Question mark. However, she is performing better than anybody thought she would what about in the 20 counties that matter maybe it's 30 maybe it's 10 i, I don't know that's not my area folks but in the in the hyper narrow counties of those five or six key states do they know how to spell w-a-r-r-e-n i mean is, <laughs> is, is, is it working well i think for her she's gonna have to do a tremendous amount of retail yeah. politics in those areas right exactly. she's gonna have to get out there and meet and greet people because that seems to be her strongest asset and, 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 i think and, minnesota you know minnesota could go either way republican or democrat you know how does she play in minnesota that's the kind of thing you gotta really start thinking about now is this what secretary clinton didn't do i think clinton had so much more more baggage than warren warren has ideological baggage she has yeah. reputational baggage for what she thinks. However, you can counteract that when you meet somebody first, you know, firsthand, or you go to town meetings or caucuses. And over the primary season, she can counteract that in some ways. But whereas Clinton could not shed the baggage because it was 20 years worth of baggage. And that's one thing Elizabeth Warren does not have. Whatever baggage she has right. is actually fighting for consumers. So I don't see her having to lift that kind of heavy load that Clinton had to lift. And that's the margin of difference that would not right. mean I don't, you know, doesn't torpedo her campaign against Trump. It would be a, a, a tall mountain climb. It would. But I don't think right. she can be labeled the same way Hillary was labeled. How do you identify, if you're folks, if you're just joining us, Wendy Schiller, Brown University, we diverge here on politics on a Monday morning. Futures at negative one. Professor Schiller, and this is a phrase that was used, disaffected Democrats at the time of the liberal blow up of the Democratic Party. How do you identify disaffected Republicans, the people that do not support the president? How big are they and are they identifiable? It's a great question. I don't think there are disaffected Republicans at the moment. I think there are Republicans that are annoyed, but I don't think they're just they're Are they still going to vote for Donald Trump? Yeah. I, I firmly believe that. I, you know, I do. I don't think they're going to cross the aisle to vote for a Sanders or a Biden or a Warren. The problem is they may stay home. If Biden's a nominee and they can live with Biden, but they don't want to vote for a Democrat, they may say, I'll sit this one out. And if they sit that one out, it becomes 2012. And that's the advantage Obama had over Romney. And that's how the right. Democrats can win. But I don't think anyone's crossing the aisle in this day and age. Of Ex explain politics. the dynamics of one moderate, which is Biden among the front runners of the Democrats. I mean, are there moderates out there that can find some mass? Or are we beyond that? No, I don't think we're beyond that within within the general election. Whether we we have it in the Democratic Party, it's unclear. But I think there's a lot of fatigue with sort of up and down with Trump. I mean, there's just general fatigue. And Biden is sort of a calm waters kind of yeah. guy, right? This is like the guy who will get you there, smooth sailing, no disruption, no uncertainty. And there are people who are kind of craving that. And he's liberal enough. So I think particularly with men, particularly white men in the Democratic Party, can Biden actually get them out the door, take them away from Sanders? That's the only way he wins the nomination. Yeah. And that's what we're looking for right now. Is he resonating with that particular group within the party? They tend to be more moderate than everybody else in the Democratic Party. Good update. Professor Schiller, thank you so much. Uh, Professor of Political Science uh, at Brown. We're thrilled that she could join us.
Julia Coronado joins us right now. Before we get into the repo discussion, Julia, why are the PMIs and ISMs become so important? Is it because the math is better? Well, I think with the, the market measure that we're going to get this morning, it's useful because, as Jonathan mentioned, we get it twice a month. We get a preliminary read and a final read. The other thing is that it's a consistent um, survey across countries, yeah. so it's comparable from the U.S. to the Eurozone to Japan, et cetera. So it's a, it's a useful, timely barometer. Do you expect to see the same story that we're seeing in Europe, Julia, which is wheat manufacturing, but perhaps some small signs that it's showing up in services? Well, that would be very important for the U.S. Um, the uh, consensus is expecting a little bit of a bounce in the services measure, and we've seen service sector resilience in the U.S. so far, and that is absolutely essential because we don't expect the manufacturing sector to be snapping back anytime soon, and, and really the right. service sector has been carrying the entire weight of the economy. Uh, Julia Coronado with us, Macro Policy Advisors. One minute ago, the headline comes out. And John, I guess we get used to this. New York Fed takes $66 billion of treasuries, securities, and repo operations. So, Julia, mm-hmm. they brought in full faith and credit, bills, notes, and bonds as a, a general statement. And they pushed out cash to whom? To a variety of people, to banks and through banks to other financial intermediaries. Um, so it is really um, the uh, li- liquefying the entire financial yeah. system through these operations, including including foreign demand as well. And then on Friday, we had the idea that big banks were reticent to do something with their cash or their securities. And the blame mm-hmm. goes back to Basel. Is that the only way yeah. we fix this, is to deregulate the regulation? Um, that would be one road you can go down, but the, the Fed certainly knew that these regulations have been in place, and they made a decision to sort of explore the frontier of how much reserves were needed by the system, and they found the frontier. So we had a liquidity crunch on one of these periodic uh, moments of elevated demand, they're going to like probably move the move to actually increase the level of reserves in the system. I so think that's we found the frontier. So, Julia, ultimately, does that mean expanding the balance sheet again? And, yeah. and when do you expect to yeah. see that? Well, they've been very clear signaling that this will be part of the October uh, communication that we get from them, that they will explore these issues, make a decision by the October meeting. So that's that's when I would expect to see it the from Chair Powell. Former New York Fed President Bill Dudley writing an op-ed recently, and Tom and I are really looking forward to catching up with him in about an hour and 30 minutes' time. Uh, that plug for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. Julio, excuse that. But he said okay. that you could focus on the bills and not further down the curve, and then the optics of it will improve, and that's just one way of communicating this is not QE. What do you, what do you think of that, Julio? Focusing on buying Treasury bills instead of going further down the curve to expand the balance sheet and increase reserves? Well, I'm not sure that they're going to go that route when they have discussed this at the meetings this year and they have been discussing these issues all year. They've sort of tied all of the balance sheet policy together under one investment policy. So both the reinvestment of the mortgages and treasuries as well as balance sheet expansion would all fall under the same policy, which currently is to sort of invest across the curve with the issuance patterns. And now, folks, our Coronado dumb question of the day. I'm always qualified to do that. 
Does the policies, this arcane PhD trust dynamics of the repo market, does that mean that our listeners' CD at their bank is a lower yield than it would be otherwise? No, this is um, unaffected. This doesn't affect retail yields. Uh, and in fact, one of the goals of keeping these markets liquid is that these kinds of funding crunches don't affect retail yields, that all of this is behind-the-scenes plumbing of, in the wholesale market. Yeah. The retail market should be okay. We're losing Julia right now. Uh, Julia Coronado, thank you so much for wonderful explanations today. We are thrilled to bring you now James Trevitas. Uh, with his public service to the nation in the Navy and, of course, his Supreme Commander NATO as well with the Carlisle Group. Admiral, wonderful to have you with you. Uh, we could do a two-hour conversation. We don't have time for that. But I do want to go back to a small memo which shows from another time and place, business as usual, May 6, 2010, Brussels. And this is where the Chief of Defense of the Ukraine the chief of defense of Turkey and the supreme allied commander of NATO, one Admiral James Trevitas, wandered into a room and signed a document to drive forward an ecumenical feel about Europe within all the politics of the moment. After what you've observed this weekend, has your efforts of May 6, 2010 been just destroyed by this domestic U.S. politics? Certainly, it's a setback, Tom. And any time um, you allow domestic politics to uh, insert themselves in national security, international concerns, you run great risk. And this is where the old saying comes from, that um, politics ends at the water's edge. Well, not so much anymore. And therefore, uh, a very carefully crafted set of relationships with Ukraine are teetering right now. That's bad for U.S. security. Do you perceive this? This is absolutely critical. I was speaking with my good friend David Gura, who I know had Ambassador uh, Brady on Nicholas Brady, I believe was on Up this weekend. And whether it's Nicholas Brady or it's James Stravitas, the question is the same. Do you perceive this as a one-off foreign policy, domestic politics moment, the unusualness of President Trump's tenor, or is there a new permanence here to where we take domestic politics abroad? I think there has always been a subliminal element of what's going on domestically that bleeds into our international stances. Classic example, you and I are old enough to remember, is the war in Vietnam, which eventually was completely driven by domestic politics. But um, since the fall of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, we have not seen this level of region. And like everybody else, hey, I want to read the transcript of that conversation and make a judgment. Does it exist? Oh, absolutely. I assure you it exists. Every time the president of the United States speaks to a foreign leader, it is recorded and transcribed. That's a fact. It exists. It's a government document. And given all that has happened, I think we need to take a look at it and then we can make a judgment. That's a fair statement. Are you suggesting then that the uproar over Trump-Putin at Helsinki just with translators, there are documents to those conversations? That's a different uh, environment. Yeah, when, you're yeah. over, when you're overseas, 
No. This is a phone call he made from the White House, and I've seen hundreds of those transcripts over the years. Typically, they're uh, passed around at the highest level. So as Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, I would see uh, the comments and discussion of, uh, of the President of the United States with David Cameron or with Nicholas Sarkozy right. or Angela Merkel, because you need that intelligence content for your situational awareness. Um, so it exists for sure. If you're just joining us, Admiral Stravitas, of course, you know, his book, The Leader's uh, Bookshelf, uh, was my book of the year uh, here in the not too re, uh, distant past. I still highly recommend that book. It's at least 50 books out there to make you wiser and smarter about the path of the nation and the future of our foreign and military policy. Can you explain, Admiral, that I'm sure you aspired to be on the Joint Chiefs of Staff in whatever form. I mean, everybody does. It wears a uniform. How do they relate to this president? I mean, they're all going to be quiet and take the Mattis stoic line and all that. But what's actually going on at the Pentagon among our chiefs that are joint? First and foremost, I was very lucky because I became Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. I was also Commander U.S. Southern Command, everything south of the United States. So I never had to be in Washington in that mouse Lucky you. politics. <laughs> Lucky me, exactly my point. Um, but, of course, these are my friends and contemporaries who have done this. And, and, Tom, I think you've categorized it exactly right, which is all of them are citizens, all of them have views, but the professionalism at that level has to be as solid as a brick wall, and it is. There are few certainties well, in lifetime, but I would bet my life that you will never see a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, out there in a public way getting involved in politics. How, do, how do you – do we have war plans with Iran? I, I mean – you know, I don't want to give away the family secrets here, Adam. I'll get you in trouble. But, I mean, I know General Dunford listens every moment of Bloomberg surveillance. But we have <laughs> war plans with Iran. I get that. Now we're sending troops to Saudi Arabia. Is it Kuwait-like Gulf War II, Gulf War One troops? I mean, what's that deployment signify to you? Uh, first, we do have war plans for every contingency around the world, including war with North Korea, with China, with Russia, and in this case with Iran. Those are well-built, they're well-resourced, they're detailed, um, and they have escalation clauses in them, Tom. So you start at the bottom, and you probably look at things like cyber attacks. That's probably what's going to happen next in Iran. Yeah. But the deployment of troops will be part of that a war plan, contingency plan, operational plan. And no, it will not be 150,000 troops going to uh, Kuwait. This will be uh, in the thousand or two at the most. Mostly they'll be there to defend U.S. facilities, our uh, embassies, our base Admiral, in I, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt. What are 2,000 troops going to do at the margin anywhere? Whether it's and Midtown, Ma it is Midtown Manhattan or Riyadh. I mean, come on. <laughs> it is. It will be, to answer your fundamental question, yes. This will be okay, a symbolic you. deployment of troops. Okay. Admiral, thank you so much. I needed a new book idea from you from the Leader's Bookshelf. i got to get back to my core. I'm reading about the Romans now, uh, Paul Sweeney. Yeah, James well, Stavita. Tom, I yeah? have a book coming out on 15 October oh. about character called 
Ten Admirals and the Voyager character. You should check it out. There we go. It's a book plug by James Trevita. Somehow I think we'll be doing that. Book. I think we will. I think we will. Admiral Trevita, thank you so much. He is with the Carlisle Group, our former Supreme Commander at NATO, is well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.